as I was watching this, it was just driven home even more to me that so much of what happens in this movie is familiar. I lived a lot yeah. of what happened in this movie. I don't know. I kind of wanted to jump up and cheer at that. Yeah, right. Because she said what most people think in those situations, but don't have the nerve to say. It just just sucks. It sucks that that's the way she would think about it. She'd rather be dying than pregnant because Mm -hmm. she might still be accepted if she was dying. But this is not something that the people in this world she lives in could accept of her. This is where you see Skip's hypocrisy. really come into play here because it's okay for the people who deface the school to stay at prom but it's not okay for the gay kid to stay at prom yeah and i'm sitting there at that point thinking god damn jesus tells people to do a lot of stupid shit in this movie doesn't he yeah welcome to unbound a podcast for new atheists and lifetime atheists ex-evangelicals truth seekers and free thinkers there is life after faith And life here is good. It's time for a new perspective. And a better conversation. I'm Spider. And I'm Shell. And And it's it's time to get Unbound. Can I just say how happy I am that I never went to a Christian high school? Oh, yeah. Because I almost did. The very notion gives me pause to think about it now, and this edition of Unbound at the Movies offers a myriad of examples of how my already skewed adolescence could actually have been worse. Yeah. I'm Spider. And I'm Shell. And tonight, we're going to take a scene-by-scene look at a movie I've referenced numerous times on this show, and one that even as a late-stage evangelical, I had to admit got a lot of details about Christian teenage life embarrassingly correct. We're looking at the movie Saved, and if you haven't seen it yet, I hope you'll give it a go, especially if you're ex-evangelical and squandered your adolescence being drunk on the Kool-Aid the way that I did. But before we dive into that like a Jesus-y looking pool boy, (laughs) creation is crackpots, the end of an error, and I shot the sheriff a letter, but he didn't take down that unconstitutional mural this week on Christians Behaving Badly, New Year's Dissolution Edition. Shell, what have you got for us this week? (laughs) This has got to be one of the next things that god-awful movies will tackle. It has to be. Hemet Meta over at the uh, Friendly Atheist Twitter describes it much better than I ever could. I regret to inform you that Creationists made a horror movie called Night at the Creation Museum. The main character, played by Eric Hovind, seems to be an atheist laughing at the exhibits because these people don't even believe in science. And then the dinosaurs attack. You gotta be kidding. No. Okay. I watched the trailer. I'm so sorry. It is... The things we do for our listeners (laughs) on this show. The things we endure. It's terrible. It's obviously a ripoff of Night at the Museum. Oh, you think? And an ad for the Creation Museum all at once. So this quote-unquote horror movie is a half-hour ad for the Creation Museum. Pretty much. With some really bad writing and acting. But, you know, I did watch the trailer. It was as bad as I expected. Eric Hovind plays Derek Daly, a guy who gets a job as a security guard at the Creation Museum and somehow never actually finds out who the owners are or what they believe. Over the course of the night, he learns about the truth of biblical literalism. Sounds exciting, no? Oh, I'm I'm riveted. Tell yeah. Me, tell me more, please, I beg you. I didn't think so either. 
Of course, like all Christian movies, it pretty much bludgeons you over the head with the message and extra preachiness. The continuous dull lectures on why evolution must be false are devoid of any sort of humor. And of course, there's also the misinformation. Well, I mean, the the notion that evolution must be false is misinformation in and of itself. Of course. But of course, they're going to take a half an hour to explain their point on this. Because obviously, people haven't heard their position on this as of yet. Yeah, apparently. At one point, we come across a display that tells the horrific story of a short black man who was featured in a human zoo exhibit over a century ago. We're told that's what evolution leads to, as if acknowledging our shared ancestry with apes is somehow an endorsement of slavery or colonialism. A century ago, we thought a little bit differently about certain things. Ten years ago. We thought differently about certain things. Yes, so it's true. But they'll pick anything. They'll pick out anything yes. to be able to point fingers at and have their CC moment over yeah. it. You know what I mean? I, I know. The movie is 35 minutes, was filmed on a cell phone, and is already on YouTube. And so is the sequel, because of course there's a sequel that no one asked for, called A Night at the Ark Encounter. So is Ken Ham behind these things, or oh, no, they're just are they just his psychophants doing this? It's psychophants. Gotcha. Okay. This one, they bragged that it was filmed in 12 hours, again on a cell phone. To be very honest, while the story is laughable, it must have been a pretty nice cell phone, because the recording is pretty good. Now, just to play devil's advocate for a minute, there have been movies that have been filmed completely on iPhones. Right. You know, they're, they're, they're out there. And it's something that can be done. Sure. If you have the talent to do it right. Right. I mean, and everything looks very clear, but it's just poorly made because these people don't know how to make movies. Well, no. They walked around with a cell phone without any, you know, any semblance of knowledge as to how to make a movie. Right. If you understand movie making, you understand things like lighting and set design Mm -hmm. and all of that stuff. At the end of the day... Even a cheap camera can make your vision look good if you actually have a workable vision. Yeah. So I wouldn't fault them so much for shooting an entire movie on a cell phone because it's been done before. It's just a matter of do you have the talent to pull it off? Yeah. And I'm guessing that's a big no. (laughs) No. Even though it was a minute and a half of my life, I still recommend that people watch the trailer if only for the ridiculous scene of dinosaurs, quote-unquote, chasing the security guard. Stationary. Stationary. Dinosaurs. Dinosaurs. Chasing yes. the people. Yeah, okay. Yeah. All right. It All right. was pretty hilarious. My next story is a little different because it covers an ongoing trend. I have to admit to feeling a little sad in a weird way when an old church closes its doors. Not me. I know. But it's a sentiment that goes to my upbringing in Episcopal Church, back when no one used microphones and the internet didn't exist. While I know that this is what happens, I have mostly pleasant memories about my childhood as an Episcopal. In this article, Hemet Mehta wrote about a Pennsylvania church closing its doors after 221 years. I saw a picture of the church, and it really does look like a church I would have attended as a child in the 70s and 80s. No microphone, no large screens projecting song lyrics, no website, no YouTube channel for this church. While COVID might have contributed to the closure, it was en route to this fate for years. 
Here's a quote from an article by Brett Peloto from the Center Daily Times, which is a local newspaper. The church that was organized at a time when there were only 16 states had no shortage of movers and shakers throughout the years. It was established by the same men who founded Belafonte, Pennsylvania, while other members included two former Pennsylvania governors. Church elder Candace Daneker estimated the church had about 40 members before the pandemic, a number that is down to about 25. The church did not have in-person worship from March 2020 till Easter Sunday. Of this year, I guess that means. Yeah. Attendance is down even more sharply from when Daneker joined 34 years ago. She estimated there were about 200 people in attendance then. So, I mean, it's been on a downward spiral for yeah. a while. It sounds to me like one of those churches that basically died of natural causes because oh, yeah. they weren't bringing anyone new in. Right. And as all the as all the older members either died or left for whatever reason, mm-hmm. it just started dying its own natural death over right. time. Yeah, there was um there was another lady that they quoted and she was like You just went to church. It's what you did. And time goes on. And this is what happens. And I know it happens. It sucks, but it's there. It's just something that you did. And now fewer people are doing it. Right. And this is just a prime example of what you see in that Pew Research study. Yeah. It's just a natural outgrowth of the change that's going on in the cultural zeitgeist. And it's a good change. It's a very, very good change that's happening. The problem with traditional churches is just that. Tradition. When the only reason you ever went to church is because it's just what you do, that isn't going to keep people from going to church. And as the congregation ages, so did the amount of people going to your church. Yeah, that's, that was basically the point I was making. Right. When no one is forcing you to do it, you will find better things to do with your time. True that. The building's future is up in the air, but the people who went there will find other places to worship. Or Why better you wish yet, that on them? No, I'm just saying that they will. Or better yet, find better things to do with their time. Oh, yeah. Much, much better. Yeah. Much, much better plan, yes. Yes. I'd like to see these places become hubs of community. Most of the traditional mainline churches have facilities much like old elementary schools as well as neighborhood locations much of the time because every little neighborhood had a Catholic church at one time mm-hmm. so that they could walk. Old churches like the one in the article have history behind them, which is a good basis for making it a historic landmark. I'd much rather see that than it become a storefront for another church. True. But it could be like a community center of some sort as well. Yeah, that works. You know, it's like we had two Catholic churches on our street that closed, and they're both homes for other churches at this point. Yeah, Yeah, that's the problem. Wow, okay. (laughs) <laughs> They're both homes for evangelical churches now. Yeah, really That's obnoxious ones. Yeah. This one's a little bit cringier. Yeah. And, you know, it kind of evokes the opposite sentiment in me in terms of, you know, the last story tells me that we're moving in a good direction, but this one tells me that we still have a long way to go. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of work to do. When you walk into the Columbus County Sheriff's Office in North Carolina, you will see the inscription from Philippians 4.13 emblazoned in large letters on the wall. I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. News of this reached the Freedom From Religion Foundation, who sent a letter stating, among other things, that this Bible verse display 
promoting Christianity in a sheriff's office building is correctly viewed by a reasonable observer as an endorsement of religion and is therefore unconstitutional. Just a little. Just a little. It's not the only thing that the sheriff's office has done. This Christmas, they posted an overtly religious holiday message celebrating the birth of our Lord and Savior. Oh, brother. Christianity for everyone. Yeah, not me, thank you. (laughs) While this display is obviously unconstitutional, nothing has been done in response to the Foundation's letter except for a doubling down of the sheriff's beliefs. Instead, the Sheriff's Department Facebook page contained a message from Sheriff Jody Green, which stated in part, The mural was paid for with private funds, not with county funding. The verse is one of my favorite Bible verses, and it seemed fitting for all the adversity I've had to endure. Oh, were you? Mm. Here at the Sheriff's Office, we work hard in everything we do. Before we execute a search warrant or any service that puts our people in immediate harm's way, we always go to the Lord with a group prayer. Always. Well, that's kind of terrifying. Yeah. But okay, yeah. When your law enforcement body is drunk on the Kool-Aid, folks, watch out. Just watch the fuck out. I was raised in church. I have been in law enforcement for over 30 years. My training taught me to value God, family, and my country. Going back to the Bible verse, I have taken many pictures with that Bible verse with not a single issue. But now that we're heading into an election year, it is an issue. Yeah, because it's absurd. all about politics. Yeah, right? Crazy. You're not a religious organization. You're a law enforcement body. It has no business being there. You are entitled to your beliefs. But not to the extent that when I walk into public space, I have to be confronted with Mm -hmm. your beliefs. Yeah, No, that's bullshit. And, of course, Sheriff Green's screed also includes the typical, our society is going down the tubes, drugs, alcohol. We need more Christians, obviously, thing. Oh, obviously. That's going to solve everything. It seems to be their go-to anytime people want to complain about the division of church and state. And it's not like... Most of the government isn't run by people who are Christian. They're allowed to be. That's the beauty of the society that we live in. They are allowed to believe whatever they want, but they aren't entitled. And that's what this is. Mm -hmm. It's all about entitlement. Oh, yeah. They're not entitled to shove it in my face. Right. Believe what you want, but believe it over there. Just believe it over there. Leave me out of it. Yeah. But he seems to believe that the mural is legal, that proselytizing as part of his job is legal, but it isn't. He clearly states that he's promoting Christianity in his office. He also seems to believe that asking him to stop doing that is asking him to give up his Christian faith. No, no one's asking you to give up anything except for that stupid fucking mural. Yeah. That's it. If he wants to promote Christianity, why is it? Why doesn't he just become a preacher? Seems that's what he wants to do anyway. There's better money in this. Of course. And guns. And guns. Oh, yeah. yeah. Can you imagine what would happen if he was promoting anything else but Christianity? This nonsense would never have had a chance to even get started. Probably not. But of course, if he was promoting something else, it probably never even would have made it as far into the news as it did. Yeah. So there's that as well. 
and they use that to their advantage. They use public interest in this sort of thing. They use that to their advantage. And you know, the the sad part is that probably nothing's going to come of this. Oh yeah. It, the Freedom from Religion Foundation had its say, and that's probably as far as it's going to go. Unless there's somebody in the town who wants to be a litigant. True. If they want to sue them. But, but then they'd also have to endure threats from oh, all yeah. these Christians. Yeah. And it might be difficult to find someone who yeah. would want to contest it, not just from the standpoint of persecution, but from the standpoint of probably the sheer number of people who think the way this guy thinks in the first place. Right. It might be difficult to find someone to contest it. So there's that part of it, yeah. too. It's like I always say, you got to keep your voices loud. You got to, you, you've got to advocate for what's actually right. And that's what the Freedom for Religion Foundation is doing with this. So, you know, kudos to them for at least pointing it out. Whether it ever goes anywhere or not is anybody's guess. But, you know, kudos for at least pointing it out and doing something to put it in people's heads that, you know, this whole separation of church and state thing actually matters. Yeah. So if it never goes beyond that, at least that statement was made. And obviously more than a few people have heard it. So yeah. there is that. And along those lines, it's kind of what we're doing here, isn't it? You yeah. know, we're letting a few people hear the messaging that we're sending out there in the hopes that it might change a few people's minds, get them to think in more productive directions about their lives, and possibly take their lives back from this religion that has robbed them of so much of themselves. And that's why we're here, and that's why we need your help. Our Patreon is active at patreon.com slash unboundpodcastnetwork. Any size donation that you can help with is going to help us further this cause of ours, and it's going to help more people get and stay unbound. So if you can help us with that, fantastic. If you don't have the means to help us financially, help us with your likes, your shares, your five-star ratings, and all the things that help podcasts grow. We're looking at a, a really, really fun and informative 2022. Next week, we're going to be talking about climate change and mm -hmm. how evangelical Christianity has been skewing the messaging on climate change for decades. And hopefully we're going to help you build a little bit more of your counter apologetic about this particular subject as we tackle it from not, you know, I, mean, I feel like we could do an entire series on it, but you know, that's most of my aim with this is to help arm you with a little bit more of a counter-apologetic so you know how to come back at them when they hit you with the basics. Because honestly, most of them don't really go beyond the basics when it comes to how they explain what they believe about this and why they believe that it's not a thing. So we're going to go through the point-counterpoint with that a little bit and hopefully arm you a little bit more for discussion and debate on that subject. That's going to be next week. And I've also settled for next month's Unbound at the Movies. I've settled on The Life of Pi. Yeah, so that'll be fun. So we're going to take a look at that one. I keep wanting to go to The Apostle, and then it's like, it's so, it's so dark. I know. And it's so dismal. But I think it's also an important one to, right. uh, to look at. So I think I might put that one right on deck and... Um, we're going to do the Life of Pi next and then probably endure the Apostle one <laughs> more time for you, our listeners, we'll probably do that. Yeah. But I have, um, I've settled on the Life of Pi for the next one. I think we've referenced that movie enough on this show that it warrants the full treatment at this point. So that's going to be our next Unbound at the Movies excursion. 
But for right now, I really just want to dive in and take a look at the movie Save because there's a lot going on here. And yeah. there's a lot of truth that comes out in this movie. Whether it was planned or accidental, there is a lot yeah. going on here. So let's just dive right in. So let's start out with just a fun fact about the movie Saved that I found in an article from PluggedIn.com. Now, just a quick disclaimer about that site. This site is, in fact, run by Focus on the Family, James Dobson's organization, so don't expect anything profound here. It just so happens that the article on this movie is presented in a way that allows room for discussion, so I'm going to give it a nod once or twice as we go through right. this and also add my two cents to what they have to say as we go. Here's a quote from their review of the movie Saved. The script for this film originally called for the Elms, a Christian retro band, to play themselves at American Eagle's prom, but the Elms backed out a week before their scene was to be shot. Band manager Craig Jager said his band was not amused by the script's, quote, mocking spiritual tone. It's over the top, and it brings out a radical type of Christian lifestyle. And my thought there is, well, does it, though? <laughs> Really? Yeah, I used to hop in a van and converge on wayward youth group members. I used to think a lot like Hillary Fay. I hate to admit it, but I yeah. did. I used to talk a lot like Hillary Fay. <laughs> and I hate to admit that even more. I was every bit as self-absorbed, and I had the same misguided thoughts about how I did Christianity as she does in this movie. I didn't need equipment to lead someone to Christ, but I did carry my Bible to school every single day and led more than a few people into the fold that, you know, I so totally fucking regret now. Mm. One radical character, in my opinion, and I'm talking again about Hillary Faye because she's the most um, she's, she's the most visible yeah. of the radicals in this movie. But one radical character does not equate to a radical depiction of Christian life. I was encouraged to be radical as a right. teenager. Everyone was. All Christian young people are. Thankfully, most of my friends thought better than that. They were more on a different level than I was. They were behind me with what I believed and how I executed this thing called Christianity. It just wasn't the way that they really thought that they, they personally wanted to do it. But I got a lot of encouragement. I was encouraged to be the Hillary Faye persona a lot of times when I was a younger person from friends, from my youth pastor, from a lot of different sources. Now, some of my high school friends actually got radicalized later on, which is kind of sad. Yeah. Um, they got a little bit more drunk in the Kool-Aid as they got a little bit older and experienced a little bit more of life, which is sad, but, you know, it does happen that way sometimes. But all those influences when they were teenagers are what went into that. It all builds on itself and all the things that you go through later on. So, yeah, some of them turned into Hillary Faye in their 30s. But, you know, at least I got past that stage of things when I was still a teenager. And I'm definitely thankful for that. And then you've got kind of the, the anti-Hillary Faye in this movie, Patrick, who is the balance to the scales, I think. He was much more typical of the way a lot of my friends thought and behaved. He believed, but he had a profoundly humanist side to his personality, something that I wish I'd had. Looking back, I wish I was more like Patrick as a teenager and a Christian right. than Hillary Faye. Unfortunately, it just didn't go that way. Mm -hmm. So we're throwing out names here. Let's actually give people a little bit of a foundation of who the major players are in this movie. First, we have our main character. Her name is Mary. And Mary is very typical of the God told me to mindset. Mm -hmm. 
everything she does in this movie stems from a profound belief that she's doing what Jesus wants. And she's not the only one. Right. She is, however, definitely on the side of the white savior trope. The other side of the equation comes out in our next key player, Hilary Faye. She's the white savior character amped up to 11. Mm. And all of her emotions center on proving to the world what a great Christian she is, how God talks to her, how driven she is to save people, particularly Mary and Cassandra. She's also a terrible loser with an absolutely vile, vindictive nature, which we will see come out toward the end. Then we've got Cassandra, and I wrote about three times as much about her as anyone else in this cast. Clearly one of my favorite characters in this movie. Cassandra is the antithesis of the evangelical teenage ideal. She's a rebel. She smokes. She has sex. She drinks. She has a Jesus fish on her car that says Gefilte because her background is Jewish. And also a bumper sticker that says Jesus loves you. Everyone else thinks you're an asshole because she has a sense of humor and a deep-seated need to mock these idiots she's been forced to learn beside due to some poor past life choices. Hilary Faye is relentless in trying to convert Cassandra. Truth be told, she only wants Cassandra to get saved because finding Christ would rob her of her sense of self and make her more like the average American Eagles student. Hilary Faye is threatened by Cassandra because Cassandra embodies the radicalism that makes up Hilary Faye's persona, but has the added element of personal empowerment and freedom from religion that any Christian who's honest with themselves would have to admit that they envy. Then there's Roland, Hilary Faye's disabled brother played really, really well by Macaulay Culkin. If I had to choose a favorite Macaulay Culkin role, because I mean, he's he's not like one of my favorite actors, but of the movies that I've seen him in, this yeah. is my favorite of his. He is Hilary Faye's disabled brother who became paralyzed in an accident at age nine. Hilary Faye is his caregiver during school hours and clearly resents the responsibility. Roland's outlook on life is healthier than average in this movie, definitely healthier than the average evangelicals ever will be. His personality and thought processes are a lot like our next player, Patrick. He's a sort of atypical preacher's kid. He's Pastor Skip's son and has some very liberal views on things for the environment that he's in. He steps in as the voice of reason more than once in the course of events during this movie. Then we have Dean, who has a small part in the movie, But the movie kind of revolves around him. Yeah. He embodies well the struggles of being a Christian teenager who is also gay. As I was watching this for the umpteenth time, it was just driven home even more to me that so much of what happens in this movie is familiar. I lived a lot of what happened in this movie. And, you know, it would have been more so if I'd taken that extra step and gone to a Christian high school. But fortunately, you know, it was something that I thought about for about five minutes and then (laughs) said, yeah, no, not really. I don't think that this would be a very good idea for me. It wouldn't be a good use of my intellect. Of course, then I went on to Bible college after that. So Mm. who the fuck knows what happened between the point where I looked at that brochure for that Christian high school and then just got all gung-ho over Valley Forge. I, I don't know. And, uh, you know, I've spent enough time trying to figure it out as far as I'm concerned. And another thing that I found interesting about this movie is the pairing of Martin Donovan and Mary Louise Parker. Um, Saved came out in 2004. One year later, they play each other's love interests in the first and second seasons of Weeds. Yeah, that's weird. It kind of was weird. And I saw this movie after I saw the first couple of seasons of Weeds. 
I didn't see saved until probably around 2008, 2009, somewhere in that neighborhood. And when I saw those two together in this, it was a little bit jarring. Yeah. But they play off of each other well in Weeds, and they play off of each other well in this too. So that it just 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 a little personal note on that one. If you guys are fans of Weeds, then you get to see a little bit more of this dynamic in this particular movie. The movie opens with Mary giving a little bit of voiceover narration. The whole thing isn't really narrated, but she does step in from time to time with a little bit of a voiceover. And she starts out by telling us that she's been a Christian her whole life, or at least since age three. That was when she got saved, saved at three years old. I wonder if she got saved because she wanted more out of life. (laughs) Yeah, Becky, we're coming for you. Jesus camp later this year. Um, And then she says that her mother has taught her that everything is part of God's plan, including the death of her father. And as a child, this was a traumatic enough experience for her that she wanted to be with him and be with the angels the way that her mother said that her father was with the angels. So what does she do? She closes her eyes and steps off the sidewalk and starts walking into traffic. She's pulled back. Obviously, there would be no there'd be no story here if right. she wasn't. But, you know, that's indicative of the way that they make you think. Yeah. You know, your life here is crap and your life in heaven is going to be so much better. And that concept was driven home with Mary at a very, very, very young age. And it was unfortunate because that was what it kind of culminated in at that time in her life. After seeing that little flashback of her, I don't even know if you want to call it a suicide attempt. She was attempting to achieve something that she thought would enhance her existence, that sort of thing. But once we once we see that scene unfold, we jump to present day and we see Mary and Hillary Fay painting the Jesus statue that Hillary designed. Um, that's this towering thing yeah. that sits outside of their school. Roland comments that he doesn't think Jesus was white. And of course, Hillary favorites sports with, of course, he's white, because what else is a white evangelical going to believe about Jesus? Yeah. Hillary Faye, Mary, and a few others are members of a group called the Christian Jewels that Mary describes as a sort of, quote, girl gang for Jesus. Yeah. And they do a lot of things together. They jump cut to a scene of them as this movie's equivalent of Operation Rescue and trying to convince women not to go into an abortion clinic, even though like 80% of them are not going in there for an abortion in the first place. Then we learn a little bit about Mary's mom to the extent that she's like the number one Christian interior decorator in their town. Yeah. Why that's significant, I don't know. It's never revisited. Then they jump to another scene that was very familiar to me Mm. as a Christian teenager. They're at some kind of Christian concert and behaving the way that you see Christian teenagers behave at Christian concerts. This brought me back to my Petra and Mylon Lefevre days for sure. Mm -hmm. Mary is about to start her senior year at American Eagle Christian High School, and she has the perfect Christian boyfriend. It's the end of summer, so they've been working on this statue. It's supposed to be, you know, this welcome back sort of thing that everyone's going to ooh and ah over. And after a long day of painting this, like, 50-foot Jesus, Mary and Dean are back at her house, and they're swimming. And they have this game that they play where they tell each other secrets underwater. So they plunge themselves under the water, and Dean looks at Mary and says, I think I'm gay. And I mean, she knows what he said, but she's kind of like, yeah, wait, what? And he repeats it. He says, I'm gay. And she's so taken aback by this 
that as he goes back up to the surface, she's distracted and she's too close to the side of the pool. And as she's coming up, boom, she hits her head right there on the base of the ladder. Ow. So she's kind of incapacitated. Dean realizes something is wrong. The pool boy is there. Yeah. And he dives in to save her. It just so happens that he looks a little bit like the average evangelical version of Jesus. Yeah. So he dives into the pool to save her. And as she's coming to, she sees what she believes to be Jesus swimming toward her. And not only is Jesus swimming toward her, she has this vision of Jesus telling her that Dean needs her now more than ever and that she must do whatever she can to help him. Yeah. There's that white savior trope right mm-hmm. there. Now we see mom and Pastor Skip, which is kind of jarring for anyone who likes weeds. Yeah. And it was definitely a surprise to me. Yeah. On a first look. But, you know, you get a little bit of an idea that these two are friends, but there's more to it. Yeah. You get that idea, but they don't come right out and say it right away. But it's kind of obvious. Just the chemistry that's there. It's kind of obvious. And after a brief conversation with mom, we get another voiceover from Mary about how could my boyfriend be gay? He's the best Christian I know. And she refers to his uh, his homosexuality as a, quote, spiritually toxic affliction. Yeah. Which is, I mean, it's typical of how you're taught to think about it when you're well, that yeah. age. So with this whole mission to do whatever she can to help him, they start out by going to their town's makeout point. You know, wherever this place is, and there's a long line of cars with steamed up windows, and we see Mary and Dean in the car, and she tries having him kiss her. Later on, she has him basically touch her boob, and it's like, (laughs) do you feel anything? Anything going on? And yeah, nothing, because that's not what he's into. Right. And, uh, you know, he's literally not turned on at all, but she's determined to keep trying. I think that those couple of things were an effort to uh, to, to stave off the inevitable. Because yeah. she knew, I think, when she came to at the bottom of that pool and believed that she saw Jesus tell her to do this, I think that she had already resolved to do what's going to happen in a couple of minutes here. But she was trying to see if there was a little bit less drastic right. a way that she could snap him out of his gayness, basically. <laughs> we all know how well that works. Now, this is the first time that we really get a good idea of who Hillary Fay is, because now Hillary Fay and Mary are at a shooting range, a Christian shooting range called Emmanuel Shooting Range. And their slogan is awesome here. An eye for an eye. A little stereotypical, a, a little, little bit, bit over the top, a little bit caricaturish, but, you know, it also makes a statement. Right. So Hillary Fay is talking about how she's committed to protecting her virginity under pain of death. And then you jump cut to her firing off a few shots into the target. And you know those targets that they have at the yeah. shooting ranges where, right. you know, you've got just the top half yeah. of the person. Well, this one was a little bit more... She, she starts shooting toward the bottom. Yeah. So you, you know what she's thinking about at that point. <laughs> you know, I'm saving myself till marriage and I'll use force if necessary and starts unloading on this target again. And she and Mary start talking about, what if you do it? What if you cave and you have sex before you're married? And that triggers an entire conversation about emotional and spiritual virginity and that God can restore you. Mm -hmm. Um, The whole thing that true love waits refers to a secondary virginity. 
You know, yeah. it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a cringy, very, very cringy, cringy kind of notion. Yeah. But Hillary Fay is convinced that God can restore you if you repent. So after that combo, Mary decides, okay, well, you know what? And Christians do this all the time. They say, okay, well, you know what? I know what I'm about to do is wrong, but I also know that I can repent for it later. Right. So that conversation with Hillary Fay firms her resolve that what she's doing here is right. And she comes home and immediately seduces Dean. They have sex and, you know, it's successful. So she decides that she's cured him and right. thanks Jesus for curing her boyfriend of the gay okay um <laughs> so we get a little establishing shot of the neighborhood that they live in it's kind of quest averty and kind of agrestic yes uh, for our weeds fans out there and our poltergeist fans out there yeah and i i loved how you came up with the little boxes yep. analogy there little boxes made a ticky tacky yes indeed <laughs> hillary fay we find out has a disabled brother named roland and has a chip on her shoulder over it. Roland, on the other hand, has a really good self-image for what he goes through day to day and what he endures at the hand of his sister and all the hypocrisy yeah. that surrounds that. He's got a really good self-image. He isn't anywhere near as bothered by his disability as his sister seems to be. Roland is my second favorite character in the movie, mostly because he figured out what a crock of shit this whole Christianity thing was while he was still young. And has a very good time mocking it all. Of course. I wish that I had figured these things out when I was his age in oh, this yeah. movie. Then we meet Veronica, who is the stereotypical adopted kid from Vietnam, because that's another major trope yes. in stories that revolve around Christendom. She doesn't have a lot to do here, but we will see her again. She has a few points of relatability here that we'll see later. And then there's this whole conversation in Hillary Faye's van, she she gets this van. She wanted a Lexus, but she gets a handicap van that she can cart Roland around in and pretends to be thankful for it. Yeah. Veronica brings up to both of them that they're lucky to have the lives that they have because if they had lived in China, chances are Hillary Faye would have been aborted or killed and they would only have Roland. The The implication there is that they would have one flawed child and, and not this perfect picture of Christianity that yeah. Hillary Faye is. And I love what Roland has to say here about that. Yeah, uh, Veronica says, well, if you had been born in China, you probably would have been killed. And where would that, where would that leave you? And Roland chimes in with, in China. Yeah. Because he would be the survivor. Because he'd be there. <laughs> yeah. And that's that's the kind of snark that he brings yeah. to the table, and I really like it. So they're on their way to school the first day. That's They're they're all um, gathering in – Hillary Faye is, like, picking up everybody in the neighborhood that goes to the school. And they stop at Dean's house to pick him up. And they find out that he's been sent to this place called Mercy House, a Christian treatment facility for, quote, de-gayification, to quote Mary, yeah. because his parents found gay porn in his room. And all of this transpires in a matter of hours. They yeah. find this thing the night before, and before school starts in the morning, he's already at this place. Yeah. It happened that fast. And that's not inaccurate. No. It really is not. It because isn't. these places exist yeah. And checking people into them happens just this way and just this quickly. And it's disgusting. Mm. So Mary finds this out. Um, she, she goes up to the door. She knocks on the door. 
And Dean's parents tell her that this is what's happened. So she goes back to the van. Hillary Faye asks if he's coming out. She says no. And then off camera, Mary explains why. And yeah. Hillary Faye almost drives her van right off the road. But Roland, in true Roland style, says that he's not surprised and describes Dean as a, quote, one-man gay pride parade. <laughs> so, you know, we had people that we went to college with yeah. that were clearly and obviously gay. Yeah. But no one wanted to talk about it. And, of course, they didn't want to talk about it. Right. But Roland has a point here. It's not the type of thing that you can typically hide. No. When you look at Dean and his character, it's like, how how could you not... How could you not know this was what was going on with him? And, and you know, they did with him what they do with a lot of people, especially in Bible college, and just sort of ignore it. Yeah. If he's not going to address it, then we're not going to address it. We're just going to peacefully coexist here and see what transpires. And what transpired with several people that I was aware of at Valley Forge, both male and female, is what transpired with them is that they eventually left. Because they yeah. were they were square pegs in this round hole that was this very white evangelical Bible college. <laughs> and Hillary Fay and Co. are trying to comfort Mary and one of them, I forget which one of them, tells her that it's better off that she found this out about him now because, quote, gayness can be passed down to your children. Yeah. And you know what? It's, it sounds ridiculous, but they believe it. They yeah. do. I've heard things like this before. Yeah. So now it's time for school. And we get a few bars of Depeche Mode's personal Jesus as people are filing in. Yeah. And now it's time to meet Cassandra. This one is my favorite character in the movie. Yes. Um, she's described by Mary as, quote, the only Jewish ever to attend American Eagles. There are rumors that she was a stripper. And again, she's the antithesis of every ideal that these people hold. She smokes. She has a Jesus fish on her car that says Gefilte because she her background is Jewish. And then there's the Jesus loves you. Everyone else thinks you're an asshole bumper sticker that Hillary Faye just can't help but deface. Yeah. So right up to her car, takes out a key, scratches out the second half. And she's also very condescending with Cassandra. And that's uh, that's just her M.O., Cassandra is yeah. smoking, and she's very passive-aggressive about telling her that she really shouldn't be smoking around other people because secondhand smoke kills. And I love Cassandra's response. She just sort of looks at Hillary Faye and says, I'm counting on it. And throws the lit cigarette and at throws her. a lit cigarette at Hillary Faye. So school's about to begin, and there are just a lot of little Easter eggs and things that you're supposed to, like, kind of half-notice in this movie. Right. And I particularly liked the stenciling of Jesus is watching yeah. on the classroom wall. That was a nice touch and definitely um, a nice little stereotypical way of portraying this particular environment. Then we get to meet Tia, who, you know, I'm, I like this character too. It's another really small character. But the thing that I like about this movie is that even the bit characters are given things to do and they right. advance the plot. And Tia starts regaling the class with a story about how Jesus appeared to her in her fish tank. Yeah. And then we get to meet Patrick. We find out that this is Pastor Skip's son. He has been away doing missions work for a little while. I think over the summer he had been doing missions work. And as soon as Mary sees him, he has her attention, like yeah. immediately. 
And the scene ends with Mary's teacher asking her what she did over the summer. It's mm. like, oh, we already know what she did over the summer. Yeah. Outside, Cassandra is having a smoke and Roland rolls up behind her. And now she thinks that she's about to get caught by one of the one of the um, admins at the school. So she throws the cigarette away and it's just Roland. And there's immediate you can see the chemistry yeah. that develops between these two like immediately. But we don't get to see a whole lot of it just then because now we're jumping back to the first assembly that they right. have for the school year. And the Christian jewels are singing this song that makes absolutely no sense. Well, no. It's a lot. There's a lot of oohs and ahs. Yep. There's a lot of that. But it was supposed to play off like a stereotype. Yes. And mission accomplished. Yeah. Because when they weren't ooing and aahing, the actual lyrics in this song make no sense. Of course they don't. I'm certain that that was on purpose. Mm-hmm. So we get, you know, a cringy 30 seconds of that. Yeah. And then back to uh, Cassandra and Roland. She tells Roland that she thought he'd have been sent to a special school by now. So they know each other. Yeah. It's just that, you know, they, they're kind of seeing each other in a different way at this point. He points out that American Eagles is a special school, which it is, and not in a good way. Mm. They chat, and the chemistry just keeps developing between the two of them. He talks about how he got hurt. That's basically for our benefit more than anything else. I'm pretty sure it it doesn't make sense to me that she wouldn't have known what his story was by then. So that was more for the audience than anything But what happens next is great. I mean, she starts walking away. She's going back in for the assembly at this point. And he gets caught staring at and commenting on her ass. And she she makes it abundantly clear to him what will happen to him if he does it again. Yeah. So, you know, it's funny that she would play the hard to get role a little bit here. But she doesn't keep it up for long with him, you know, because she knows what she wants to. So then we get to see Pastor Skip. Pastor Um, try hard. Oh, God, yeah. He tries very hard and fails to look relevant and in touch. Yeah. He's using all kinds of 2004 slang. Oh, it's terrible. Let's get our Christ on. Let's kick it Jesus style. Who's down with G-O-D? Then the requisite chant of Jesus rules, Jesus rules, Jesus rules. (laughs) So, you know, kind of whipping them up like they do the first night at Word of Life, basically. Yeah. Then Pastor Skip decides that he's going to lead the entire school in prayer. And as he's praying, we find out what's going on in the heads of some of our major players here. Hillary Faye starts praying for the best year ever because, quote, she deserves it. Veronica silently repents of letting that promise maker's guy touch me in the rectory. Tia wants her dad to stop drinking and wants to be a jewel. Cassandra is sitting there while everybody else is praying and she's looking at Roland wondering whether or not he's paralyzed everywhere below the waist and the look on her face it's obvious what she wants at this point and Roland knows it right Patrick just he's sitting there just hoping that his father doesn't embarrass him especially in front of Mary and then Mary because all of this has transpired so quickly And it hasn't gone the way that she expected it to go at all. She asks Jesus why he isn't keeping up his end of the deal and asks God if he actually restored her. Yeah. It's very sad. It's kind of sad, this this moment for her. 
she's so happy, like just a couple of weeks before, right? That she was able to get her boyfriend, someone that she loves and cares about, past this horrible thing yeah. that has befallen him, and now it's just all gone to shit anyway. Yeah, and she's starting to have what's going to escalate into a much bigger crisis of faith as things go on in this movie. Mm-hmm. And then Pastor Skip does what any good youth pastor does after he hasn't uh, had all of these kids under tight reins for two months. He accuses them all of being backsliders and asks who wants to rededicate their lives to the Lord. So there's a rededication altar call because clearly all of these kids have backslidden. Of course. And down to the altar they all go because a little guilt goes a long way. But Cassandra decides that she's going to take matters into her own hands and starts yelling in tongues and doing the 2004 equivalent of basically twerking as though her life depends on it. You know, <laughs> she's 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 kind of flash dance and kind of just flash, you know, yeah. that sort of thing. And speaking of flashing, that's what seems to be about to happen here. She's going off in quote unquote tongues and Skip is buying it hook, line and sinker. Because of course. But she's also ripping her top apart, and it looks by all accounts like she's going to flash her tits. And that's what Patrick and Roland are both thinking about. Patrick is like, she's going to show her boobs. And Roland is like, she is. She's going to show her boobs. Thank you, Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) So as she's spewing off in tongues, things start to clarify a little bit. I mean, anyone with ears to hear knows what she's saying at this point. Mm -hmm. And she's going off and over and over and over again, just saying, my pussy is a hot pussy. (laughs) And just doing it with extra syllables and in that speaking in tongue sort of way, my pussy is a hot pussy. And just going off like that. And Skip is just buying it like crazy Uh, until Hillary Faye calls her out because even as drunk on the Kool-Aid as she is, she sees this for what it is. Yeah. And basically, and basically she literally just stands there and says, she's saying she's got a hot pussy. (laughs) And that is the end of the scene. We don't see what happens next, but the notion here is that Cassandra is going to be expelled for it, but she's not. And Mary describes her as going from, quote, cautionary tale to legend after that. And Hillary deals with her anger at the situation by angrily wishing that Cassandra gets saved. Yeah. Because, you know, then it's it, it's odd, but it's kind of the Christian teenager equivalent of, you know, she, should, she can go fuck herself. Yeah. But, you know, it's like you can't be that person in this environment. So instead of saying what you really feel, you say, oh, I just wish that she would accept Jesus. She'd be so much happier and it would just do wonders for her life and blah, blah, blah. Hillary Faye doesn't care about any of that. No. Hillary Faye only cares about getting the upper hand in the situation. Yeah. And that's the only reason why she might even remotely want this to happen. But she really doesn't. She doesn't care. That's all we get to see of their school day, of their first school day. Now they're out in the parking lot after school 
And Patrick shows up while Mary and co are out in the parking lot donning his living epistles style (laughs) t-shirt that says Jesus, but it actually looks like the ACDC logo. Yeah. There were shirts like that back in the day. Lots and lots of them. There still are. Yeah. The actual living epistles shirt back then was JCDC. Yes. And it, and it said underneath it, there was the caption, Jesus Christ, divine current. I saw that one. I still have no fucking clue what it means. (laughs) The divine current. Okay, whatever. So Patrick stops specifically to talk to Mary, but of course Hillary Faye has to hijack the convo. Right. Now we follow this little click that they have going on to the mall, and here comes Cassandra again, because, you know, what is this movie without Cassandra running interference on Hillary Faye at every yeah, fucking turn? Seriously. So she's talking to someone off screen. Whether or not she's literally talking to someone or if she's just putting on this show for this group that remains to be seen. It's kind of like the violent breakup sort of conversation where all you hear is her yelling, screw you, asshole. And by the way, no more muffins for you. The muffin shop is closed. And she claps her legs together when she says it. (laughs) So, uh, of course, Hillary Faye is just sitting there looking just like she has no idea how to deal with the situation and she really doesn't. No, of course but, not. But Tia, who also works at the food court, has hooked them up with some free food and Hillary Faye gets the notion into her head that we have to show Cassandra just how cool Christians can be. And I've been here. I have been here. I have been here. You know, it was something that was definitely encouraged in the circles that I was in mm-hmm. is to show all these heathens how much fun we can have as Christians. So, so they start yucking it up like crazy and it's obviously fake. And Cassandra obviously knows that it's fake, but she's going to play into it anyway. Yeah. And she just runs a complete train on the party and asks Roland if he wants to get out of there so she can, quote, take a ride on his wheelchair. She's, I guess, legit drunk at this point. Because, yeah. Because she um, falls on the floor. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. She's acting drunk, so so she's she's had a few, and they also say that she smells like Tia's dad. Yeah. So there's that also. So I mean, this movie kind of jumps around a lot. It does. But you don't need long drawn out scenes to make the points. No. It's just that you go from one thing to another so rapidly with this. Yes. That, you know, you kind of have to be paying attention to watch where the story is going. And the very next scene, we are watching the girls PE class at American Eagles. And Patrick runs by with uh, some of the other boys. But of course, it's him that Mary notices. And Hillary Fane notices Mary noticing Patrick and has to call her out on it. It's like, I see, I know what you're looking at, Mary. And Jesus does, too. I'm sorry, but I've been the deliverer of messages like that. Uh, yeah, it's not something I'm proud of. No. But again, I saw a lot of Hillary Faye in myself, especially the very the very first time I saw this movie. It's like, it, it was, I almost didn't make it through it because yeah. of that. It's like, it reminded me, it confronted me <laughs> with some of the cringy shit that I did when I was a teenager. Yeah. But Cassandra, of course, she's got to run interference on this like she does with everything else. And they're all doing stretching exercises or calisthenics or whatever you want to call them. But every girl in this place is literally bent over, basically standing there bent in half. And Cassandra mentions to Hillary Faye that she can see her pad. So that diverts the attention away from her uh, 
coming down on Mary for actually being attracted to a boy. Yeah, right. A little bit later, we see Mary in the girls' bathroom, and she's not feeling very good. We see her hugging porcelain pretty good, and, uh, you know, we all know where this is going at this point. Uh Skip is teaching the sex ed class and explaining that sex is meant only for procreation, you know, a little bit more stereotyping, but that's okay. Yeah. Shows the class two very clearly male and female, but also quite androgynous in a Barbie and Ken sort of way. Creepy. Yeah. So these models, you can tell that they're male and female, but they're also androgynous, like a Barbie and Ken doll. Yes. Mary then asks a very awkward question that the entire room is kind of taken aback by. She asks Pastor Skip whether or not sometimes it's God's will for someone not to save sex for marriage. Right. And he looks at her like she has lobsters crawling out of her ears. Yeah. And, you know, the funny thing is I needed a potty break at that point, And I actually paused the movie on his expression <laughs> at the end of that. that was and weird. the look on his face when she says that. It's a typical youth pastor kind of reaction to it. Yeah. He, like, he played that role well. Yeah, he, he did. He really nailed like, the early OO's youth pastor type. Yeah. He really did. So now we can see a little bit more interaction between Mary and mom. I also don't think that we see enough of this yeah. during the movie. Yeah. I think that mom's character, Lillian, really deserved a little bit more screen time, but her character served the purpose. And in this particular scene, it serves a very relevant purpose. They're at home watching TV and they're watching this movie's equivalent of Jeopardy. And one of the categories is the Bible. And we find out right then and there how much mom knows her Bible, which isn't really much at all. No. And then they change channels and they're watching this god-awful fictional Lifetime movie called Bitter Harvest with Valerie Bertinelli who is talking about how she thought that she was pregnant and found out that what was really going on was that she had cancer. At this point, the thought of being pregnant is kind of a fleeting sort of dread amped up a little by the morning sickness, but that's about to change. Mary has started suspecting that something is up. She goes to buy a pregnancy test, and then she runs into Tia, who is also working at the pharmacy. It's like, how many jobs does this girl have? She says that she's moonlighting because she's trying to save up to buy a car. But um, it's a short conversation. Mary manages to hide the box so Tia can't see it. And, you know, she kind of breathes a sigh of relief and goes home and takes the pregnancy test. But as she's riding her bike home, she's chanting, please let it be cancer. Please let it be cancer. It just just sucks. It sucks that that's the way she would think about it. She'd rather be dying than pregnant. Because Mm -hmm. she might still be accepted if she was dying. But this is not something that the people in this world she lives in could accept of her. So she's choosing death over pregnancy, which, you know, I'm sorry. It's another point of relatability here. It it makes sense given the environment that she's in. But of course she goes home. She takes the test. The test comes out positive. She has a brief moment of denial where she calls the company to ask about false positives, but she knows. I mean, she's got, she knows all the signs are there. Meanwhile, the kids and American Evil, American Evil, ooh, I'm leaving ooh. that in. That's that's a wonderful little Freudian slip. I'm leaving yeah. that in. The kids at American Eagles have organized a prayer circle to pray the gay away from Dean, okay? Wow. 
we then find out that Hillary Fay is the organizer because, of course, she is. Her right. incessant narcissism wouldn't let her just leave this alone. Remember, like a while ago, we yeah. when we were talking about the concept of gossip prayer, yeah, where you're praying for somebody, but it's just an excuse to talk about them behind their back. Yeah, that's pretty much what she's trying to put together here. Tia says something to Mary about how she's sorry about Dean's faggotry. Yeah. Is that even a word? I mean, I don't Jesus. No, I don't think so. That's just weird. And then one of the cringiest lines from Hillary Fay in this whole damn thing, she says, you're not born a gay, you're born again. Yeah. And you know what? It had an air of, um, it was something that I'm certain I've heard before. Right. The very first time I heard it, it definitely was a little bit triggering. Because yeah. I had already started learning how to think a little bit differently. I was still in. I was still in this thing. But I had already started learning how to think differently about that. Right. So hearing that and realizing that it's the type of thing that I would have said when I was that age was definitely cringy. Yeah. Then we jumped to a little bit more of Cassandra and Roland. And they're really, really liking each other's company. And she kind of plays it off a little bit. She asks him if he is scared of being seen with a stripper. He counters by asking if she's scared of being seen with a cripple. And then my favorite exchange between the two of them in this entire thing. These are the two lines that stuck with the first time I saw this movie. These were the two lines that stuck with me. Cassandra looks at him and says, you know, I'm not really a stripper or I'm not really a stripper, you know. And Roland counters with, I'm not really a Christian. So, you know, that kind of encapsulates the entire message of this movie because it basically kind of undermines the entire message of what a Christian is supposed to be. And you aren't this by association. You're this by choice, you know? And Cassandra had this whole persona that she tried to keep up. It was okay with her that people thought that she was a stripper because it lent to her image. Right. But she wanted to be transparent and honest with this person that she cared about. So when, you know, just to allay any kind of thought or notion that it might be true, she tells Roland, yeah, you know, this really isn't me. And Roland is like, well, that's okay. You know, you pretend to be this thing in front of people. I pretend to be this thing in front of people. And it's just a facade here. It's just you and me and we get to be us. And it's a really, really powerful moment. As far as I'm concerned, it's a very powerful moment in this movie. We find out that Cassandra got expelled from her last school. They don't really get into the reasons why, but she was expelled from her last school and it was American Eagles or homeschooling. And she said, "I, I still feel like I can deal with these assholes way better than my parents. Yeah. And in the midst of this conversation, they spot Mary coming out of Planned Parenthood. It's kind of like that scene in Fast Times. Yeah. And, you know, nobody says anything at the moment, but they're sitting there like Brad in disbelief, watching his sister come out of the clinic. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's kind of an, an aha sort of moment for Cassandra, but she's also not that vindictive, and we're going to find that out in a little bit too. But Roland speculates that she might be planting a, a pipe bomb, Cassandra suggests the actual real reason why she would be there. And Roland basically says that the pipe bomb is more likely. So, you know, uh, Roland, prepare yourself for a shock. To round out this scene between the two of them, even after that, they're not distracted enough by it to not be able to bring the focus back around to each other. And finally, we get to see them kiss. It's, and and let me tell you, I, I love 
this entire story arc. Yeah. It is so awesome. And watching them kiss was, it's like, yes, I wanted to see this happen. These two really, really seemed like they were made for each other from yeah. the very beginning. So it was cool to see that happen. Mary, on the other hand, you know, she's going through a lot and she is feeling betrayed. And boy, don't I know a thing or two about having a crisis of faith and mm. being angry at God for not following through on things. Yeah. And this was another one, the first time I saw it, where I almost had to walk away from it for a minute or two because I related to this so much. The things that she was saying in this scene yeah. and the emotions that came out, oh, I'm very, very familiar. And she's asking where Jesus is in all of this. She stares up at a cross and swears at it. Yeah. I mean, repeatedly swears at it. This girl is angry. It looks like she was trying to pray, but all that would come out were like curse words because she feels like, okay, my life is over right now. That's not far off. You know, I, I hadn't really thought about it, but yeah, yeah I mean, you can, you can see you kind can of see the expression she's... on her face. It's kind of like the words aren't coming out and all that's coming out is the frustration and the anger at the situation. Yeah. It's like, I don't know if it was really her swearing at it. But, but what else did she have to do? She was feeling hopeless yeah. at that point. And she was feeling abandoned by her God. And that can do some profound things to you. It did some very profound things to me. I just wish that after that first time, it had done a little bit more yeah. to keep me away from it. Yeah. But, you know, it was what it was. And Mary doesn't completely give up on her faith in, this, in, in the course of this uh, movie either. A lot of us go through those periods where we get angry at God, but eventually forgive him because, I mean, that's what you do when you're in an abusive relationship. You come up with reasons to go back to the abuser. Unfortunately, that's a lot of it is human nature. So yeah, she's feeling very betrayed. She's swearing at this cross. And on the heels of that, we get to see this prayer circle that Hillary Fay has organized. And Mary basically crashes the party. She shows up a little bit late and she arrives to some very, very typical gossip prayer that's fueled with hate and homophobia because, of course, it is. And, you know, Hillary Fay is just, quote unquote, praying mm -hmm. all of this vitriol about homosexuality and about how it's affecting Dean and all of that. And Mary makes the point when Hillary Fay is done with her little gossip prayer diatribe, Mary just comes out and says Jesus isn't listening. And of course there's a lot of gasping and oh my godding and whatnot yeah. and whatnot. And Hillary Fay makes the point that prayer works. It's been medically proven. Man, I remember I remember hearing that so much. Oh yeah. Yeah. Patients at hospitals heal better if they pray and all this and that. I don't think that was a real thing at all. But there's there's a degree of truth to it because right. of what it does to you mentally and emotionally. Right. You may feel a little better, but you're not going to be any better. There's yeah. a difference. So no, it's not medically proven that prayer works. It's just a psychological fact that when you channel those thoughts in a certain direction, that it gives you a slightly more positive outlook on things. But Number one, it's short-lived, and number two, it really doesn't do you any good anyway. Right. So Hillary Faye decides to deal with the situation by kicking Mary out of the jewels, and Mary tells her that everything she's doing is a waste of time. So she's definitely just a little bit jaded at this point. Yeah. 
Mary goes home and she and mom talk about why Dean's parents sent him away so fast. And mom says that it's like when you take your car to a mechanic because you can't solve the problem on your own. Yeah. Not really great. No, no. Not a good analogy at all, but I understand what she's saying. And understanding the mindset, I understand it even better. Right. Mary figures out that the baby is going to be born, or or she thinks the baby's going to be born right after graduation, and she decides she's going to call Dean. The subject of the pregnancy keeps getting stifled, though. She never actually gets around to telling him. But it's not for lack of trying. Dean is now convinced that Mercy House is actually going to help him. Yeah. But here's the problem. They've roomed him with another gay boy. Yeah. Who decided this was a good idea? If the idea here is that you're going to cure him of the gay, why would you leave him alone in a room with another attractive gay boy? Right. Okay, it makes absolutely no sense. But I think that that was the point. I think yeah. that it was supposed to not make sense. So things kind of progress quickly through the school year in this movie. It's yeah. already Halloween. And for some reason, these evangelical kids are all wearing costumes, which, you know, it it seems a little bit out of place for me how much they seem to just be embracing this whole thing. But, you know, I also recall the alternative Halloween celebrations that we used to have at church where the kids would come in in costumes and whatnot. So maybe this place is just a little bit more progressive and maybe they've just got a slightly different emphasis on it. But they're allowing it. And I always, I just thought that that was odd. From the very beginning, I thought it was odd. But I love Roland's costume. Of course, Roland is disabled. He's in a wheelchair, so he shows up as a roller skate. And, you know, just to make sure that she keeps up the whole persona, Cassandra shows up as a witch. And all the jewels to keep up their persona are wearing angel wings. Wow. So Cass has rigged her car now so that Roland can drive. She shows him this. We don't get to see it immediately, but we will in a few. And in the midst of all of this, we find out that Mary is starting to explore other options when it comes to her religion. She's trying healing crystals. Yeah. And Cassandra shows up and tells her, number one, tells her that it's bunk, and then tells her that she saw her leaving the clinic. And Mary, I guess she had her story already mapped out yeah because she says that she was there handing out pamphlets okay yeah but pastor skip is also noticing something off with mary and reaches out to her friends this really i don't think goes the way that he expected it to her friends including hillary fay launch an intervention to the tune of tubular bells for those who, who are not in the know tubular bells is the theme music to the exorcist yes right So Pastor Skip, keep in mind, has told these girls to be extra gentle with Mary. And here is how extra gentle pans out. Hillary Faye and co. roll up in her van and out jumps Tia and Veronica with her. They grab Mary, drag her into the van, and attempt to exorcise her. Yeah. They tell her they've got to get rid of the evil in you. You're backsliding. You're a magnet for sin. And Mary, is she is just absolutely aghast and affronted and with good reason. And when Veronica tries to call her out, that's when she brings up the whole promise makers thing. Yeah. They can't say promise keepers. So now it's promise makers. And apparently Veronica had a good time with one of these guys at a promise makers rally over the summer. 
And this was another very powerful moment in the movie for me, where Mary looks at Hillary Faye and says, you don't know the first thing about love. Mary just basically turns her back on her and starts stomping away. And Hillary Faye's response to that is to throw her Bible at Mary, physically throw her Bible at Mary and say, I am filled with Christ's love. And Mary then reminds her that the Bible is not a weapon. Yeah. But when I read my Bible, I I see Jesus saying things like, I don't come to bring peace, but a sword. So, you know, it's more of that skewed thinking where love is hate and hate is love. I remember this on one of my VN weekends. One of the spiritual directors in one of his talks held up his Bible and said, this is not a sword. It's an invitation. But then in other parts of the book, it says that the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any double-edged sword, piercing the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So how do you counter, how, how do you yeah. reconcile telling me that it's not this thing when the book says that it is this thing? And it's the same thing here. Um, we're not supposed to think of the Bible as a weapon, but there are a lot of aggressive and weaponized kind of concepts that come through in it Yeah, that, you know, we're just sort of not supposed to think about, at least in this context. Mary then attempts to stomp off for a second time in a short way away. Patrick, you know, in true Hollywood style, shows up and offers her a ride on his Vespa. And on their way back to her house, he tells her that he doesn't think there's anything wrong with Dean. Not bad for a PK, especially not that guy's kid. You know what I mean? And then he says something that I found to be really, really insightful for a kid his age. He said, Mercy House doesn't exist for the people they send there. It exists for the people who do the sending. Yeah. And that's so true. That is so true. And so Mary asks him, because she sees how differently he thinks, she asks him point blank, well, why were you at Hillary Faye's praying? And his answer here is priceless. He says, honestly, I thought you'd be there. <laughs> so, you know, he's, he's very outspoken and he has a lot of self-esteem. I like that about him. So they get to Mary's house and he asks her out. She turns him down because, I mean, her life is complicated right now, but he's not going to give up. And just as a side note here, I've never had anywhere near the confidence that this kid had. Yeah. You know, I, I feel like I have more at 50. Than yeah. I did at 15, that's for sure. But I still don't think I've ever had the self-confidence that this kid in this movie has. Yeah. So now we get to hear a little bit more of that wonderful Hillary Faye gossip praying, where she asks the class to pray for Mary right in front of Mary. And yeah. uh, Cass kind of taunts Mary a little bit, but you know, she's about to step it up a little, you know. She has to maintain her persona in front of other people, but get her alone and she's a lot different. So Cass has definitely figured things out and actually tries to have a productive and serious talk with Mary in the girl's bathroom. It's laced with snark, but it's still more serious than you would expect from this particular character. Mm -hmm. But we're starting to see another side of Cass and I like her even more at this point in the movie. It's becoming more and more apparent just how much of a front she puts up, but she still clearly has certain issues, hence her checkered past. Mary admits that she's pranks, and Cass steps in as the voice of reason and tells Mary that what she did wasn't stupid. Mary is obviously having regrets, yeah, and she's like, how could I have been so stupid to think that this would help him? Well, you thought it because this is the environment that you're in, right. and this is the way that you're being taught to think. So don't 
think of yourself as stupid. You know, it's just like I, I say all the time, she's a product of the environment. Right. It has much less to do with her than it does with what she's been taught. Yeah, and it's like she did it because she cares about him. Oh, yeah. And it's like she had, like, only the purest of intentions. It wasn't a good idea. No. But there's absolutely no malice. No. But when you're 17 years old. I know. You you know, this this is the way that you think. You, you, You haven't seen enough of life yet. Yeah. To be able to differentiate between the extremes and the happy mediums. And that's where she is at this yeah. point in her life. And the environment that she's in is skewing those lines even further. So Cassandra, once again, being the balancing element here, assures her that, you know, what happened here wasn't her fault, that she wasn't stupid for doing what she did. So Cass decides that she is going to smuggle Mary out of school along with Roland, who is now driving Cass's car. So their plan worked. Whatever she rigged up with her car, it worked. It's scary, but it looks like fun. They take Mary to this store to try on a bunch of maternity clothes, and uh, she finds some that she likes, and Roland treats with Hillary Faye's card. Yeah. And it's at that point where Cass and Mary start talking about the Mary and Patrick situation and also about Cass and Roland's relationship. So now they've kind of brought it back around to more productive conversations about relationships and i love what Cass says here about roland and it's like i I wish that we could see what these two looked like five years down the road if they were still together it would have been really interesting but uh, she says that he gets me and i get him and i don't know what better criteria there is to base a relationship on than that they get each other they're on the same wavelength and they really are but, of course, now there's got to be a little bit more interference being run here by Hillary Faye. Is that it's, it's amazing how this just keeps going back and forth. It's like Cass runs interference on her. She runs interference on Cass. It just keeps going back and forth as the movie progresses. So Hillary Faye shows up with Patrick. Okay? This doesn't look very good at no. the moment. So, and it's also very awkward. But just to make sure that she isn't outdone. Cass decides she's going to pretend that she wants to get saved. It's getting closer to Christmas at this point, and she's citing loneliness at Christmas time right. as her reason for finally coming around. So Hillary Faye is she's a little taken aback, but you know, she she's seeing this as an opportunity. And I love how she complains that she doesn't have her equipment with yeah. her to lead this person to Christ. It's like, what equipment do you need? I never needed equipment to yeah. talk to somebody about Jesus. I don't know what the hell that was about. But Cass then starts confessing her sins. We, we jump kind of away from it pretty quickly. But she's doing her best to make Hillary Faye as uncomfortable as possible with the whole thing. <laughs> of course. <clears throat> so, but of course, we... we realize pretty quickly that the whole thing is just a ploy to distract Hillary Faye while Mary and Patrick run off. They escape to a storage room at the mall and Patrick once again tells Mary that he likes her and she asks him why. So he tells her that he admires her for how she handled things at the prayer circle. He says, you're beautiful and you speak for yourself. You amaze me. This kid's got it bad. He's got it bad. But she rejects him again And can't come up with anything better than you're not my type as her reason. Of course, I mean, she likes him and it's obvious, but her life is a little complicated right now. And she doesn't really want to get into particulars with him. And I mean, who would in that situation? 
but Hillary Fay is riding a pretty good high over Cass getting saved. So when they get back to school, Hillary Fay is all excited about this this new path that Cass finds herself on. And of course, Cass has to lower the boom on her at that point and tells her that she's decided to give her life to Satan instead. <laughs> so it's just more of the sick game of volleyball they got yeah. going on between the two of them. And uh, let's just say that Cass kind of spiked a good one on her with that one. Mm. So in true saved movie style, time just marches right on. And it's Christmas. And we are seeing the American Eagles Christmas pageant, which, of course, is full of white people. And in the midst of all of this, Mary, of course, she's now thinking even more in terms of babies because that's the nativity. And she speculates whether Mary, that is Jesus's mother, might have actually made up the whole virgin birth thing. Hmm. You know, I mean, it's a legit question. Yeah. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Only two of the Gospels even mention it. So, mm-hmm. you know, who knows? All of a sudden, though, and, and again, in the style of this movie, bam, we go directly from Christmas to Valentine's Day. Yeah. And Hilary Fay has this huge box of chocolates that she has bought for herself And she has also made a pretty ornate Valentine's card for Patrick. You know, way to be subtle there, Hillary Fay. Yeah. But Patrick has also left one in Mary's locker. And, you know, when she finds it, it's obvious that it means something to her. We jump to Pastor Skip and Patrick talking about Skip's marital issues. So now we're going to learn a little bit more here. Skip's marriage is over. It's a very complicated sort of thing. She's a missionary. Yeah. And he's here basically running this school. Yeah. But it didn't sound to me like there was much of a marriage there in the first place. And at least one of them, I think the wife had asked for a divorce. Yeah. Yeah. it, It had to have been her because his take on it is that divorce is not God's plan. So when she asked for the divorce, of course, he said no. So she basically decided to divorce him with Miles. You know, she's off in the mission field doing her thing, and he's here, and hopefully never the twain shall meet again. Yeah. That's, I guess, would be the plan here. And when he's going off about divorce not being God's plan, Patrick, again being the voice of reason in this whole thing, suggests that Dad comes up with a new plan. And what's being suggested here is that that new plan involves Lillian, Mary's mother. They pan just for a moment to a picture of Skip's family. Yeah. And you see you see his wife for a split second. Oh my God. It's so creepy. Very. It's very, very so creepy. creepy. Yeah. It looks like a Victorian like postmortem picture. It's so where totally. Where the does. family is around the mother, but the mother is dead. Yes. And they're propping her up. And it's like, I don't even know how to describe this picture other than that. Well, you know, she just looks unthrilled. Hopefully our listeners are going to give it a look. Yeah. And yeah, that's that. I couldn't have come up with a better description of it than that. When we were watching it, you said that I'm like, oh, my God. Yeah, no, that's that's precisely what this looks like. And then there's another brief conversation between Mary and mom, just so that we get an, a little bit more of an idea of what this relationship looks like and the way that Lillian thinks about things. And she says that when Jesus closes a door, he opens a window and Mary comes back with, yeah, so we can have something to jump out of. 
Oy. which is really what she's looking for at this point. She's looking for a window to jump out of and get out of this situation that she's in. And let's keep in mind that she has not told her mother that she's pregnant, and it is now months later. Okay, yeah. this happened at the end of summer. It is Valentine's Day. So she's taken to and you know what? I knew somebody else who did this and hid her pregnancy for eight months by oh, simply yeah. wearing baggier clothes. Mm-hmm. And when it got to the point where she couldn't hide it anymore, that's when she came clean. But Mary isn't quite there yet. And mom, we find out later, just thinks that she's gaining some weight that she's under stress and she didn't want to make a big deal out of it. Right. She notices that changes are happening, but she's not thinking that it's this. So nobody really knows except for Cass at this point. She's like the only one who actually knows the real truth here. And by association, Roland also knows. Right. But they're it. So now we get to see Skip and Lillian together again, like we did at the beginning of the movie. And they are out to dinner. And he will not shut up about his work. And Lillian basically stops in mid-sentence and literally tells him that she doesn't care. (laughs) And it's an exasperated sort of thing where it's like, can we deal with the elephant in the room here? (laughs) And tells him that she, quote, missed their time together and that she likes spending time with him. So now we know that there's somewhat of a history here. And there's speculation that something has been brewing between them probably before anyone even started talking about divorce. Yeah. So there's something between these two and it's been there for a while. And then she asks why God would make them feel this happy together if what they were doing was wrong. So yeah, they've had a bit of a thing for each other for a while. By all accounts, it hasn't become a sexual thing yet. But it's one of those things that most therapists would call an emotional affair. Right. That's what they're in the middle of here. Skip can really think of nothing but his religion. And it's obvious and apparent in the conversation. But, you know, his thoughts then kind of steer toward kissing Lillian. She tells him to kiss her. And he does. And you know what? I could feel the tension break at that point. It feels like there was a lot of buildup to this moment between them. And it's finally happening. And I can actually feel the relief, but it's also a very tense looking kiss. It's one of the worst on-screen kisses I've ever seen, but at least it broke the ice a little bit and gave them the opportunity to deal with certain things just a little bit more. So mom's in a very good mood the next day and she's having a conversation with Mary. And Mary talks about how Skip has tried to get Patrick to be more involved in school activities to get his mind off of dating. Mm -hmm. So what does he do to get his mind off of dating? Well, he starts by starring in their spring musical, which is inexplicably Jesus Christ Superstar, wherein we see him hanging on the cross looking like Rocky in the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Yeah. So, I mean, we're talking basically naked with gold underwear. Yeah. You know, he's hanging on this cross, and it's one of the cringiest parts of this movie for me, because this actually is one thing that you would never, ever, ever see. It's very overstated and very characterish, but it also fits well with the whole theme in this movie. So, you know, I'm thinking to myself at this point, it's Easter, and no one is noticing that she's pregnant. Yeah. It's just, it's odd to me that no one is even speculating because I know what Christians are like. And 
I'm sorry, at this point she looks pregnant. So why mm. there isn't more gossip going around about this at this point is completely beyond me. But she is flying pretty well under the radar. And we get some of Mary's thoughts about Hillary Faye at this point. She says that she can't understand how someone so pretty could be so ugly on the inside. And I'm thinking to myself as I'm listening to this, but that's most Christians. You know, yeah. most of them are what Jesus referred to as whitewashed tombs. Yeah. So it makes perfect sense to me. And I knew a lot of people that were like that. You know, they they had the outward persona, but you could tell that they were rotten to the core on the inside. And that really is Hillary Fay, and not really to her fault. Again, it's the fault of the environment. Right. But we get to see her in a more vulnerable place in a little while that actually makes me feel a little bit sorry for her. Yeah. But now it's time for yet another conversation between Hillary Fay and Cassandra, where the gospel is once again weaponized in the most annoying and arrogant sort of way. You know, in these kinds of circles, Christians like to hurl scripture and biblical principles at people that they consider to be inferior to them. And that's what's going on here. She's using the Bible and using her beliefs as a way of asserting her superiority with Cass. And I'm listening to this exchange and I'm thinking to myself, my God, they really got this shit right. Yeah, right. They got it so right. And Cassandra responds to it in a way that I think a lot of people that are in this situation wish that they could, but wouldn't because it would be just a little bit too impolite. Mm. Cassandra doesn't worry about being impolite. She <laughs> just looks Hillary Faye in the eye and says, burn in hell, you narrow-minded, tacky-ass bitch. And... I don't know. I kind of wanted to jump up and cheer at that. Yeah, right. Because she said what most people think in those situations, but don't yeah. have the nerve to say. And, you know, honestly, in most situations, it's probably better that you don't. Yeah. But it's the type of thing that we all wish we could say when we're confronted with this kind of bullshit from these kinds of people. And now we see Patrick back again making another attempt to get Mary's attention by asking her to prom. And lo and behold, she's in the right headspace for this now. And she accepts, but tells him that she wants to go with him as friends. Yeah. You know, she's not giving him any romantic expectations, but she says that she'll go. And because they've had all of these interpersonal conflicts, Pastor Skip decides that it would be a good idea to put Cassandra and Mary on the prom committee with Hillary Fay. Yeah. Then we find out that they got a band called Godflight to perform at the prom. I rewound this like 20 times trying <laughs> to figure out what they were saying because all I could hear there was Gaslight. Yeah. But the name of the band is, in fact, Godflight. Um, then Cass humiliates Hillary Fay by setting... So I, I didn't even mention this part earlier. Hillary Fay wasn't always this perfect, pretty princess of a girl. Yeah. And Roland makes sure that the right people know this. At one point, he shows Cassandra and Mary this picture of Hillary Fay, And it's pretty obvious that Hillary Fay has had some work done yeah. to look more attractive a nose job. I think she's had some cheekbone augmentation. She's yeah. definitely lost some weight because they have this picture of her in her very, very ugly duckling stage 
And that kind of helps Mary and Cassandra feel a little little bit better about some of the things that Hilary Faye has done and said and all of that. And now this is being revisited in a way that is just, I don't know how I feel about it, to be Mm. perfectly honest, because there's part of me that says, you know, this person needs to get her just desserts, but I'm not sure she needs to get them this way. Yeah. Um, So... Roland decides he's going to take certain matters into his own hands. And he takes this picture and sets it as the desktop for literally every computer and screen in the school. Yeah. And Hillary Fay, of course, is completely pissed off. But she's more pissed that Skip won't do anything about it. And in true youth pastor style and projecting the mindset incredibly well here, Pastor Skip says that those who did this won't escape the eyes of God, Hillary Fay. Yeah. Well, that's small comfort to someone who's looking for vindication. Yeah. Because the fact that God saw it isn't much comfort to her. Yeah. She wants to know who it was and she wants them punished, obviously. And yeah. this is where Hillary Faye basically snaps. She yeah. we see her alone and she's in this very despairing and distraught state and she is praying for guidance. Yeah. Well, the guidance that she gets is Really, really, really over the top and out there. The next day, people start arriving at school to find the outside of the building vandalized with all kinds of anti-Christian graffiti and messaging. So, of course, they start searching lockers, including Mary's and Cassandra's for evidence. And they find a spray can in Cassandra's locker. Mm -hmm. And they find Mary's sonogram pick. It's out now. There's no question what is going on with Mary at this point. Her science teacher does try to cover for her. Yeah. Because she sees the thing, but doesn't say anything about it, and then accidentally drops it, and now it's just out there. So with the truth out there, to the extent that it is, Mary decides that she's going to tell mom and Pastor Skip everything. Skip decides that God is punishing him for his feelings for Lillian through this. You know, that's It's like, dude... It's not all about you. Yeah, but you see, that's the way that a lot of these people think. I know. It's like, this is something that now at least indirectly affects him because he has to deal with it at school. And Mm -hmm. he also has to deal with it in terms of this woman that he cares about. And I think he finds himself caught between a rock and a hard place because he can't be too overly judgmental of Mary in front of her mother. But he has his opinions on this. And he decides that this situation that's been thrust upon him is because he has feelings for this girl's mother. It's irrational and ridiculous, but from the standpoint of this context and the way these people think, it really isn't. So Skip basically gives Lillian an ultimatum here. He says, send Mary to Mercy House or he's going to end the relationship. Because Mercy House, this is where Dean is, by the way. They deal with all sorts of things. All kinds of things, including teen mothers. mothers. Yep, It's a uh, Christian treatment facility that deals with every sin imaginable, basically. And then he follows through with expelling Cassandra because clearly she's the one who defaced the school property. A spray can in a locker is definitely proof enough. And, of course, this is what Hillary Faye wanted all along. She wants him to think that it's her. Of course, she planted the spray can and all of that. But no one is happy right now. Patrick, and there's this, this, the whole montage yeah. where you see what everyone's going through at this moment. Patrick still loves Mary, even knowing what's going on with her. 
Lillian and Skip miss each other like crazy. Hillary Faye is still acting scorned. Roland is lonely because Cassandra has gone AWOL and won't let him comfort her. Cassandra is doing the drive and think thing that I've done often myself. And she's hurt and actually prays, which to me is a little disappointing. But, you know, I, I had to remind myself at this moment that this movie doesn't exist to promote atheism any more than it does to promote Christianity. So it's kind of this very out of character thing for her to do, but it also shows the desperation that she's going through. And I think that that was more the point. But the problem is she prays that she can find Roland and she does. Now, fortunately, and I was I was glad that they didn't make more of this than they did because she doesn't really react to that in terms of, oh my God, I prayed for this and it happened. Right. She just, she finds him and just rolls with the fact that she found him. So I appreciated that part of it, but I could have done without, I mean, I, I feel like they could have cut that three seconds out of it where she was praying and it would have been every bit as effective. So there's that. So Mary and Lillian start arguing over Mary going to Mercy House. Lillian says that having a baby out of wedlock will ruin Mary's life. And she also suggests that Mary needs to give the baby up for adoption. Only one problem. Mary, it's implied, was also born under less than ideal circumstances. And she turns it back on her mother and says, so did I ruin your life? Yeah. So that kind of jogs Lillian back into reality just a little bit. She doesn't really respond to it, but she hears it. Yeah. And she is definitely considering it. Now it's prom time. This yeah. is how fast things are progressing. Yeah. Here. And Hillary Faye is getting her hair done and her card declines. Surprise. And that's for a couple of reasons. Uh, mm. She doesn't know about the shopping spree yeah. that happened earlier. But she's also made a couple of other purchases on that card since. So we're going to revisit that in just a couple of minutes. But right now... Roland and Cassandra are talking. They're at this little open air cafe and they're talking and they have this amazing talk. And I love what he says to her here. He says, I know what I want and I want you. And she counters with, I want you too. There isn't a lot of volatility with this relationship, but it's a complicated relationship. And the more we see of these two expressing their feelings for each other, the more real these characters become in my head. And it's inspiring to watch these two interact. At least it is for me. And Roland then reveals that he has this, quote, crazy idea about prom night. And it involves making things extra special for Mary. And also for the two of them. But more for her at that point. He wants for her to not hide from her prom. Because at this point, everything has come out. It's all out on the table. And she's just assuming that Patrick is not going to want to take her to prom anymore. So on the heels of that, Roland discovers that Hillary Faye has bought a bunch of spray paint on her credit card. Charged to Home Depot at 3 o'clock in the morning. So yeah. I guess wherever they live, they got a 24-hour Home Depot. <laughs> So Hillary Faye has been out in the middle of the night buying spray paint and defacing the school. So now we see the unfolding of Roland's plan. He has this gorgeous red dress that he gives to Mary to put on and asks her if she'll consider going to the prom. And she decides that she's going to go. And then Patrick rolls up to accompany her to prom, which is like romantic as fuck. Um, he tells her right there point blank that her situation doesn't matter to him. 
they kiss, and that is also romantic as fuck. And <laughs> now it's time to go to prom. Tia finds a receipt in Hillary Faye's van and doesn't say anything about it immediately, but reality hits and you can see on her face just how hurt she is by what she knows now about Hillary Faye and the conflict. You know, do I tell her? Do I don't tell? And all of that. Right. So Lillian is at home watching TV and she thinks that Mary is in her room, but of course she's not. And that prompts her to go looking for her. So now we jump back to prom and Gaslight, I mean Godflight, is uh, is performing. <clears throat> Hillary Faye is on stage now, looking very superior. She's flanked by Tia and Veronica, and she's already pissed because she saw Mary and Patrick kissing, okay? Yeah. And, you know, she wants Patrick for herself, and it's obvious. Yeah. So now she's calling out Mary and Cassandra, accusing them of the vandalism and referring to them as having infiltrated the prom. So Skip decides to just let them stay, and Hillary Faye starts going off. And has a number of unsavory things to say, not the least of which pointing out that, quote, I did not have sex with a gay and try to blame it on Jesus. So, you know, more of that marvelous judgmental attitude that is so prevalent for Christians in general. But I think this age group actually gets a, a lethal dose of it when they're that age. Roland then calls out his own sister and exposes what she did, but... Skip decides that there isn't really enough evidence, even though they've got receipts that show that the stuff was purchased with her card. It's like, yeah, but there's a bunch of maternity clothes that were also purchased with the card. So that doesn't really tell us anything. So Tia finally plucks up the courage to say something and calls Hillary Faye out with a receipt that this time has Hillary Faye's signature on it. And it's for spray paint. So now, you know, it's very difficult to weasel out of. Veronica tells Hillary Faye that she's nothing but a big fake. And Hillary Faye says, I just did this because Jesus told me to. She goes on a whole tirade. Yeah. But oh, yeah. it culminates with, this is her defense. I just did this because Jesus told me to. And I'm sitting there at that point thinking, God damn, Jesus tells people to do a lot of stupid shit in this movie, doesn't he? Yeah. But it gets better. Dean then shows up at prom in a stolen car from Mercy House with his boyfriend. Yeah. And Dean then notices that Mary is pregnant because it's kind of hard to miss. Yeah. And he thinks it's awesome. Now, this is where you see Skip's hypocrisy really come into play here because it's okay for the people who deface the school to stay at prom, but it's not okay for the gay kid to stay at prom. Yeah. Skip tells the Mercy House crew to leave And of course, Dean refuses. Patrick then decides it's time to stand up to his dad. And Skip says that the Bible is very black and white about homosexuality and that there are no gray areas. Patrick counters with, it's all a gray area. And you know what? He's right. And Dean makes the point, we've been kicked out of our homes. We've been kicked out of our school. And now probably Mercy House, there's no place else for us to go. So it's like, where do we find our acceptance? is what he's actually saying there. And Skip stuffs his shirt quite well at this moment Mm. and says there is no room for moral ambiguity here. And Mary, she's had enough. She's had enough of this whole thing. And she says everything that doesn't fit into some stupid idea of what you think God wants, you try to hide or fix or get rid of. It's all too much to live up to. No one fits in 100% of the time, not even you. 
referring to Skip. And boy, is there a lot of truth in that one little line. Yeah. And then Dean looks at Skip and says, I know in my heart that Jesus still loves me. And Mary says, why would God make us all so different if he wanted us to be the same? And it's the same point that I've made about the whole world having to embrace Christianity. There are too many different ways of thinking out there, too many differences in the way that we look at life for the entire world to ever even be able to conceptualize this, much less accept it. So that's kind of what she's saying there. Now, Hillary Fay has stormed out of prom. She's gone completely off the rails. She is irrational and driving recklessly through the parking lot, toppling the Jesus statue that she herself made. And in just a moment of irony and symbolism here, her tiara falls to the floor of the van. And she's behind the wheel of this thing. And as she is barreling toward the statue, she's saying things like, save the heathens, be a warrior, sacrifice everything. And here's your big, fat, stupid reward. She's had it with Jesus. And that's why she's plowing her car into this statue. Yeah. And I'm thinking to myself at that point, abandonment by Jesus is a huge theme here too. Right. Because we're seeing it from two different perspectives. Mm-hmm. We're seeing it from Mary's perspective and we're seeing it from Hillary Faye's now. Yeah. And we're seeing how two people with very different ideas about things deal with it. Right. You know, neither of them dealt with it great, but Mary certainly dealt with it better. Yeah. And that's for sure. So, of course, uh, she crashes the van into the statue And part of it falls onto the windshield. And now Jesus is basically looking at her through the windshield. Like, why? Why did you do this? (laughs) And Roland uh, rolls up and asks if she's okay. And Hillary Faye just sort of looks at him. And is like, I crashed my van into Jesus. And there's more conversation that goes on here. But it culminates with Hillary Faye asking Roland, do you think Jesus still loves me? And Roland looks at her and says, probably not. But then lets her off the hook and says, yeah, sure. Because why not? Yeah. You know, it doesn't matter either way. It's not true whether you say yes or no. So it doesn't matter. Mary then goes into labor in the midst of all the excitement. Because why not? We need a fun way to end this movie. (laughs) Things are happening a little early based on her calculations. But that's okay. Lillian assures Mary that Mary did not ruin her life and jumps on the ambulance with her to go to the hospital. Now, they're all at the hospital. The baby has been born. And Skip is out in the parking lot dealing with his own inner conflict, pacing around with a bouquet that I either supposed to be for Lillian or for Mary or whatever. But he's trying to decide whether or not he's going to be supportive here or whether he's going to stand his ground. And he's like pacing around the parking lot, looking very, very, very frustrated. Dean is actually digging being a dad, and there's this nice happily ever after vibe that is uh, going on within this group of people at this point, at least among the ones that are not completely drunk on the Kool-Aid. Right. Okay. So we've basically seen the last of Hillary Faye and any of the negative aspects of this movie. The last shot here and the last voiceover, both a little cushiony for my taste, but I can forgive it. Mary looks at her daughter and decides that there has to be something out there. It can't all be by chance. But then she backtracks a little and speculates that maybe it's something inside that you just have to feel it, which, you know, I think is a better call since, you know, it really is no more than a feeling. Everything that you believe or think about God is no more than a feeling. And then there's this 
last line. She says, what would Jesus do? I don't know. I guess we'll figure it out. And I think that was more of a CYA move to address the what if aspect of belief here. Because again, this isn't an atheist movie. It's just a movie. And here's what the plugged in article had to say about that. Director Brian Donnelly claims that Saved presents, quote, authentic Christian teens who make poor choices, have a crisis of faith, seek answers, and ultimately emerge with a genuine faith made strong through the fire of life. But what Donnelly considers genuine faith is expressed on screen as nothing more than feel-good, wishy-washy pluralism. And you know what? I kind of think that's a good characterization, and I think that it's accurate. I'd like to know if this guy ever spent five minutes in an evangelical youth group or Christian high school before he made this movie, because that assessment is pretty naive for a guy who got so much else right. Then again, given the source, who knows how much of what he said made it into the quote. He could have had more to say that the James Dobson disciples decided wasn't relevant. So there could have been more to this. And they go on to say star Jenna Malone, she played Mary, is more accurate when she defines her character's journey as a, quote, breaking down of faith. After having her baby surrounded by everyone in the movie who can't seem to stand Christians, which isn't really true. No. Mary acknowledges that, quote, life is too amazing to be random and meaningless, but she's not about to begin embracing Jesus again. The implications are clear. There has to be a God, she says, but the Bible isn't the way to find him. You just have to feel it. So I think that's fair. I think that's kind of what she was saying there. So I want to end off with a few comments, and we're going to start with a few parting impressions that I had of this movie. I'm not sure precisely how much experience the director has with the subject, but he did do a stellar job of shining light on all the things that make this religion so unsavory. I was amazed at how many memories it evoked. I was equally amazed at how well clearly non-Christian actors portrayed the stereotypical Christian teenager. These people got it right, way right. Skip was a little over the top, but only a slight caricature. I have a soft spot for him. His overall demeanor, let's just say that it's familiar to me. Cassandra and Roland's arc is still one of my favorite things in teen movies in general. If I had to pinpoint a favorite anything in that genre, it would be this. It's also my favorite Macaulay Culkin role, and I say that in kind of the same vein. His late pubescent character in this has a lot of layers to it, and his on-screen chemistry with Eva Amori, who plays Cassandra, is very convincing. So what about the moral message? Well, here's what I think. When a secular movie can get this many details about this age group and how the religion affects it correct, it affirms in my mind that you don't have to be a Christian to see it, but you have to be one to not see the wrong in it. I found the way everyone's inner struggles are dealt with in this movie to be consistent with what I experienced and witnessed as a teenage evangelical. While I absolutely love this movie, I admit that it does needle at my religious trauma ever so slightly, mostly in just how many points of relatability I have with Hilary Faye. That part still bothers me all these years since seeing the movie for the first time. Mary was right in her assessment of Hilary Faye as being beautiful on the outside and ugly on the inside. Most of the time, I felt like both, and in ways it's every bit as bad now, remembering the various effects I had on people as a Christian teen. There were moments when even my best friends called me out over things that I had decided Jesus was telling me to do, say, or whatever. Even though I knew it would steamroll over people's feelings or self-esteem, at that point I didn't care. 
because this was what God wanted. So I get Hillary Fay. The toxic messaging about sex and sexuality that this movie exposes has only gotten worse in the years since mm. Saved premiered, and Christian teens are still bombarded with false information and coerced into making decisions about their sexuality that are unrealistic, unnecessary, and hopelessly intrusive on their intellects and emotions. They don't want teenagers to think straight or right about sex or learn anything about responsibility as it relates to it. The overall mindset of many of these characters is one that would likely mirror Peggy Sue's mother's sentiments in Peggy Sue Got Married. Peggy, do you know what a penis is? Stay away from it. And that's about as cerebral as it gets. Homophobia is so pervasive in this microculture of American eagles that even defacing the school with profanities and blasphemies is considered a forgivable offense, but the instant Dean and his posse arrive at prom, Skip is right there to evict them. And let's talk just for a second about this whole Jesus told me to bit here. You know, this was me in so many instances. It's like every single time I thought Jesus was telling me to do something, it was something that I wholeheartedly agreed with. So where did it really come from? Right. At the end of the day, I don't think there was anything remotely unfair or over the top about the way this movie portrays its subject. In fact, the sheer absurdity of so much of what certain characters, particularly Hilary Faye and Pastor Skip say and do, make for a stellar counter-apologetic that anyone can understand. And when you're ex-evangelical, it makes a person that much more thankful to know that he or she has found their way out. And just to respond to Mary's statement at the end, if I have to look inside myself to find God, why on earth would I keep kidding myself about everything having meaning or purpose? We live in a marvelously random universe. Our existence is among the most improbable things there is. And while it's comforting to think that there's something else out there, why do we need it if we already have each other? And finally, what's wrong with the notion of our very existence being random and meaningless? It sure beats having to live our lives in debt to a God whose loyalties are so tragically undefined and inconsistent that the only prayer he answers in this entire movie is the one prayed by the one who mocks him the most and, one could argue, blasphemes the Holy Spirit, a sin that the Bible defines as unforgivable. That is what I call random and meaningless. Keep looking within for the things that your God is supposed to represent, because chances are you're better at things like love than him. You probably make far better choices than he would, and I'm sure you're a better problem solver than he could ever be. Embrace your meaninglessness. It'll help you not take yourself too seriously. Better still, it'll help you get and stay unbound. enjoyed this episode of Unbound. Show topics are chosen based on their timeliness, relevance, and social impact. Have suggestions for future topics? Email us at unbound.podcast.network at gmail.com with all your comments and feedback. Please don't forget to like, share, and throw a few five-star ratings our way and follow us on all major social platforms. And don't forget to hit subscribe if you haven't already. Links to our social pages as well as a full list of cited sources in today's episode are listed in the show notes available at our website, getunbound.org. That's get-unbound.org. If you value this resource and would like to see it continue, please consider supporting us on Patreon at the link in the show description. And be sure to check for new updates every Sunday when we'll come together again and take one more step toward getting and staying unbound.